0: Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. My name's Anoush Shikelian and I'm Deputy Web Editor of the New Statesman. And today I'll be talking to Stephen Bush and George Eaton about the week in politics. Then Helen Lewis speaks to John Ellidge and Stephanie Boland about online rage. And lastly, I speak to Ian Stedman and Tosin Thompson about the Apple Watch. I'm joined by our political editor, George Eaton, and the Staggers editor, Stephen Bush, to discuss this week in politics. Um, one of the things that we've been covering in the New Statesman this week has been Ed Balls in all of his forms, because George has done an enormous profile of the Shadow Chancellor. Now, George, why did you decide to profile this particular politician? Mm.
2: Well, I think the great thing about Ed Balls is you're never short of colour, um... So obviously, in addition to his sort of vast political experience, having been around obviously since he was Gordon Brown's closest economic advisor for for ten years, um, he's now almost as well known for running three London marathons, for the cooking, um, for the, the piano playing, and he's also quite funny. Uh, so you know, one joke that I discovered that he makes, for instance, is is, is about his name when he says, uh, "If you think it was bad for me." Think of how it was for my sister, Ophelia. <laughs> and he is a fun politician to spend uh, several hours with um, on on a, on a train, uh, in this case to uh, to Cardiff. And um, he's also potentially the next chancellor. Um, and as I say, he would enter the job as one of the most uh, experienced occupants of that office. So one thing I discovered from speaking to colleagues past and present is that um a lot of the policy ideas actually emerged from from Balls himself and 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 Brown adopted them so it was Balls who first suggested Bank of England independence and and encouraged Brown to push that through it was Balls who devised the the fiscal rules that earned new labour its reputation for prudence and um Balls with Brown in the back of a New York taxi in 97 who drew up the five tests for euro membership that that later prevented Britain joining the um single currency um, but he was he's also an incredibly divisive figure um so there's a the, he was loathed by the Blairites, seen as the most aggressive and ruthless of all of uh, brown's allies, as I say in the piece you know he's despised by conservatives, David Cameron calls him the most annoying man in in British politics, and um even celebrities attack him the noel Gallagher and, and Russell brand recently, so I think he would be a fascinating chancellor and it'd be fascinating to see how he'd um How he'd act in office. The one advantage that everyone in Labour says he has is that he does know the Treasury inside out. Often there's this fear, um, on both the left and right that you have all these radical, bold ideas in, in opposition. And then when you get into government, you find you don't know how to, to make the civil service machine work. You, they're, they're obstructive. Um, In the case of Ed Balls, he actually knows quite a lot of the senior people at the Treasury from when he was there. And so um, everyone agrees he knows how to get things done. And I think that is reassuring if if Labour get him, because one of the challenges will be to to resonate competence and to to show that they know how to use power. And um, if you've got a chancellor who knows, for instance, how to push something like the mansion tax through and to make sure that it all runs smoothly, I think that's a big advantage.
0: Okay, and because of um, Blair and Brown's tempestuous relationship, people are often looking for splits between Ed Balls and Ed Miliband, um, and there were quite a few revelations in your profile, George, about uh, those those potential splits. Stephen, is that something that you've picked up on?
3: Yeah, I think in some ways <clears throat> it, it's strange. It's both a better and a worse relationship than the TBGBs. Mm-hmm. In the as Ed Miliband said, we yeah, They both had front seat tickets to that movie. They know how it ended. They're slightly more conscious of avoiding it. But the thing everyone kind of forgets is Blair and Brown actually only disagreed about two things. Which one of them was a better election winner, which Tony won, and whether or not the euro was good for Britain, which Gordon won. And other than that, they were united on having a basically identical analysis of where the left needed to go. Whereas Ed Balls and Ed Miliband don't have anywhere near the level of personal rancor, but the political gulf between the two of them is actually much greater. But because Ed Balls is this huge brain who, as George says, knows how to wield power and how the treasury works, he's sort of like, yeah, he's the player you have to have in your team, even though um, he doesn't get on very well with the star striker.
0: OK, and you mentioned, George, uh, about Ed Balls's challenge being to make uh, Labour look fiscally competent. Is he succeeding in that challenge at the moment, do you think?
2: Um, no, he probably isn't. I mean, He is succeeding in that... Uh, all of the numbers do add up. I mean, the IFS have said that of all the three main parties, it's Labour that's actually given the most detail on, on how it would, would behave in office and that has avoided making unfunded commitments. Um, I don't think there's anyone actually who could so, turn around the, the political damage wrought by the crash in, in, in this short period of time. Mm. Um, I think what it would take is you know for Labour to... To enter government and for the sky not to fall in, for the banks not to collapse, for you know, the the, the deficit not to not to balloon. Um I mean it is a it is a challenge for, for Bulls in a way because of course he gets attacked um by the right as a s a spendthrift and seen as profligate because of course he was part of the last Labour government which is seen as having, you know, uh, spent spent all the money in in in, in the in the famous phrase um, but he's also attacked by the left. He say, like, haven't you gone back on your Keynesianism in 2010 during the Labour leadership election? You were saying we need stimulus, we need investment to get the economy growing again. Why are you now part of the uh, austerity consensus? Uh, and what Bull says is that actually shows you haven't understood uh, Keynesianism, that Keynes advocates um, borrowing to spend uh, when the economy's flat on its back, when it's stagnant during periods of recession. But when growth returns, as it now has, uh, then you do have to to reduce the deficit and he says the idea that uh Keynes, Keynesianism is always about big spending is, is is a betrayal of what um Keynes stood for um and but it's it, it's a, it's a tricky act it's a tricky balancing act to pull off but he his line is voters expect the the chancellors their chancellors to get the deficit down and that actually it's often working class left-wing voters who want uh, a labor government that saves the NHS, that um, uh, gets rid of the bedroom tax, say, that introduces a fair tax system, who also wants to know that you're going to be able to take care of the deficit and, and that you'll spend wisely. Um, and the, 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 the two aren't are uh, aren't mutually contradictory. And so um, yeah, that is that is his sort of political strategy.
0: And now on to what the Tories have been doing this week. They seem to have been concentrating their efforts on photoshopping Ed Miliband into the pocket of Alex Salmond. Um, Stephen, why why have they chosen to uh, advertise that image?
3: Right, so according to their private polling, which is backed up by the Ashcroft polling about people's uh, unwillingness to see the SNP in coalition, um, Salmond in particular has asymmetric approval ratings. He's adored in Scotland, hated in England, and they think that basically by saying Ed Miliband, he'll get into coalition with Alex Salmond, they can sort of rub off some more of that um, Salmond esque unpopularity on Labour in England, specifically in those marginal seats in the Midlands, and they need to keep, you know, they need to see off the Labour advance if they're going to be in office after May. And that's the thinking between these posters showing Sam and uh, holding the whip hand over Ed Miliband.
0: Okay. And, and how likely is a Labour-SMP alliance, in your opinion?
3: Um, I actually, so I started the week feeling fairly bullish about it. I now think, because I kind of thought the big MPs who were standing against it were Scottish MPs, and frankly, if there needs to be a coalition between the SNP and the Labour Party, those... MPs won't be around to object anymore. Having spoken to more MPs uh, in England, and also specifically to PPCs, who, if the situation arises, will have been elected, I think that the level of resistance from MPs in England towards a coalition with a party that they're already hearing a lot of negative things about on the doorstep will be quite strong. I don't see how a deal between those two parties can be struck, although obviously if Labour is the largest party, what Ed can do is effectively what Salmon did to Labour in in 2007 in Scotland, which is go, well, fine, vote us down if you think you're hard enough. Um, but whether or not he would will be in the position to do that is sort of a, an open question.
0: And Nicola Sturgeon has softened her stance on Trident, which was one of their red lines if they were going to do a deal with Labour. George, do you think that that makes a difference to how Labour might approach negotiations coming? Uh,
2: it does make a difference, um, because shadow cabinet ministers have always been clear in public and in private that Trident is non-negotiable, mm. Um there is a a wing of Labour actually which has always seen itself as the party of national security. Um, you know, it was, it was Labour, of course, that first uh, brought brought the uh, the bomb to Britain. Um, and I think for Labour to um, to be seen as the party that that sort of got rid of nuclear Labour's nuclear deterrent. I mean, there's still a, a a residual fear of um, of of the, the way the party suffered from its. Um, perception as weak on defence and national security in the 1980s, and that's something that is ingrained in in the memory of um, people like Ed Balls and Douglas Alexander, and, and even Ed, Ed Miliband to an extent, who all say uh we want a nuclear free world ideally we support multilateral disarmament but you know unilateral disarmament is is, is out of the question um so there's sometimes um, an assumption that ed Miliband, because he's red ed surely in private he he'd, he'd really like to scrap trident he he, he doesn't want to so uh, that's the that's one example of how you know milliband is not as uh, left-wing as some imagine
0: okay. stephen and george thank you very much
1: In a terrifying new book, the author and journalist John Ronson has posited that we are living through a great renaissance of public shaming. He points to social media storms as one uh, piece of evidence for this. I'm going to talk to John Elledge and Stephanie Boland, two of people on our team, about whether or not actually, really, we're going back to a slightly more pillory favoring age. Um, John, I'm going to start with you first. Which is, have you ever taken part in a Twitter storm?
4: Almost certainly, I. I'm going to now struggle to think of a specific example, but there, there is, I, I, one of the things that really stays with me about the John Ronson book is his description of the sort of feeling of, you know, this self-righteous rush when you think you're taking, you're part of a crowd tearing down a, a, some kind of villain. So I think I probably was one of the people who got a bit hysterical when, when Jan uh, was was wrote a, a fairly borderline homophobic comment about the the death of of the uh, uh, singer Stephen Gately. Um, I was almost certainly one of the people who was very excitedly having a go, a go at her then, because you know it, it was this feeling that for the first time, thanks to social media, we could we could talk back to these people, these columnists of the Daily Mail and so on, who were saying all these awful offensive things and had previously been able to get away with it. Um, so yes, I've certainly been on that side of it. And having read the John Ronson book, I am now sort of reconsidering whether this was such a, a good thing to really be involved in, because it it's not really so much a, a sort of self-righteous crowd as, as as a mob, is it?
1: I think for full disclosure, I should say that I worked at the Daily Mail when that piece was published, so I said I can't really comment on that. But, um, Stephanie, what about you? Have you ever... Twitter stormed, Facebook stormed, any
5: other kind of stormed. I haven't Twitter stormed, but that's solely for lack of audience, not for any kind of moral <laughs> scruple on my part. Um No, I haven't. But what I have noticed is more and more there's the the subtweet has become the better way of kind of taking someone down on Twitter, where you're able to have a very passive-aggressive Twitter storm now.
1: So this is the kind of like, oh, people who write articles about how great they are, are terrible. You write just after somebody's published an article, which is very kind of, you know, self-righteous. Rather than specifically saying, I hate columnist X, columnist X is a bigot column, you know, or whatever, you know, that kind of... That kind of thing,
5: well, yeah, because people Google their own names, so if you can it is one of the so laws surf- the <laughs> internet, <laughs>
1: that p unfortunately, if you try and talk behind somebody 's back, they often turn know, up in you. front of you, being quite cross about what you 've said um, i 've written a bit about this. one of the things I think is most interesting is this idea of context collapse that we 've come to, which is um a theory that 's written about by two social theorists, Dana Boyd and Alice Marwick. Um, about this idea that you never really know who your audience is online and that's something that comes quite, uh, across quite strongly in a John Ronson book is, so there's the example of Lindsay Stone who was out with a group of special needs children and she had a long-standing joke with her friends on Facebook where they would do inappropriate things in photos she did a photo of herself um, putting up her middle finger and pretending to shout in front of a sign at I think Arlington but certainly a veteran cemetery in the US where the, the sign said, you know, silence and respect please and she put this up on her Facebook feed but it went viral, and I don't know quite what the process was that it, it got everywhere. But this problem is that most people assume that they're talking to their Facebook friends who are 100 people who know them in, in real life, they're talking to their Twitter followers who are most people we know on Twitter have fewer than uh, you know 100 followers, let alone thousands. But anything, any one thing, your effectively your audience is potentially everyone. It's just and the same thing happened in what we called we used to call kind of internet trolling cases, was that people would say something that they thought they were only saying to their friends, and they quite it felt quite differently about it when they saw it being you know touted around or shown to the person it was about which is another thing if you say something about a celebrity there's a vast difference between what you would say to their face and what you would say about them and actually someone else a third party coming and showing it to the celebrity is kind of almost not your fault really.
5: Yeah and I think it was interesting in in the case with the sign outside Arlington Cemetery how quickly things are able to reproduce on the internet because um, Ronson gives the account that Then when you Googled her name and went on Google Images, it was just this mass wall of her Mm. apparently disrespecting the American war dead.
1: I think that's true. I think she's quite lucky in the sense that she's got quite a common name. Justine Sacco, who is the other big case study that um, John Ronson uses in his book. So she was this person who got on a plane from London to Johannesburg and she tweeted something that said, Going to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS. Just kidding, I'm white. And you can kind of see two potential interpretations of that tweet. You can see the one that is an incredibly offensive comment about sub-Saharan Africa that is kind of smug, gloating first-worlder. Or you can see somebody who's attempting to satirise themselves as a smug, gloating first-worlder. But the problem is that in 140 characters, particularly when stripped out of a, any kind of knowledge of her as a person, that tweet becomes, you know, becomes something very different. And, uh, because she's got a pretty distinctive name. She will never recover from this Google results.
4: I find that absolutely terrifying, the Justine Sacco story, because I am fairly sure. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quinn's is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Well, in the you know, tens of thousands of random observations I've put onto the internet, there will be something like, not something quite that extreme, but I have consciously made these sort of jokes where you're taking the piss out of yourself as, you know... Uh, a privileged white liberal i'm almost certain there will be stuff in the archive there that uh, would make me look dreadful were it to ever pop up and come out and be taken out of context in that way and the other thing is once something is on social media it is effectively permanent it's not i mean we when you're when you're on twitter or, or facebook you kind of think of it as talking to your mates in the same way you would in a pub perhaps but it's not it's there in an archive forever and if somebody is of a mind to they can go and find it and even if you delete something if someone's got a screenshot that can circulate effectively forever
1: to my mind, the problem is it is something that comes up when you talk about identity more generally on the internet. So there's a, a, a statement by Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook saying, you know, you should be suspicious of people who don't have a single identity. Of course you should have a single identity across your Facebook profile, across your Sherlock fan group, across your LinkedIn. And, and I, it's it's totally, I think, unreflective of how people operate. People are contradictory and quixotic. Sometimes, you know, people's opinions change. One of the things I think... That's interesting what you say, John, about this kind of these artifacts reigning around forever is I had always assumed that the Twitter search degraded essentially. It was quite hard to search things on Twitter, although they now made it easier through Google. Oh good. Because, <laughs> because you don't you can't be wedded to, you can't kind of lug round behind you on a chain everything every off the cuff remark you ever made, as if that was a properly considered, fully thought out statement of your of your position.
5: And I mean this is what happened with Catelyn Moran over girls and um, intersectional representation is that she made one very off-the-cuff comment which went viral on the internet and despite lots of subsequent 2,000 word very well thought out explanations the one thing that comes up when you google Catelyn Moran girls is always going to be
1: so that's something that's that uh, a, a twitter one twitter user said to her In a sort of slightly spiky way, did you done this interview with uh, Lena Dunham of Girls? Did you ask her about the fact that there are no black characters in it? And I think her response
5: was, um, "I literally don't give a shit," which obviously isn't, of course. It's not that she does not. It was more that, that, yeah,
1: exactly. I I read that as a sort of unwisely sarcastic dismissive answer to somebody who was needling you but the problem is that you there's this kind of feeling that I get when which we have you know where you people find a seize on the thing that they want to seize on and they don't ever take into account your corpus of work as a whole I think it's quite hard to look at Catelyn Moran's work as a whole and think that she's kind of a member of the Ku Klux Klan right but but then but that's sort of not and any kind of apology it's kind of any kind of any kind of restoration of context is seen as apologism I think in that that respect so you kind of go well actually you know blah, blah, blah. and then it's kind of like it becomes this idea that what well, it, mean, why why aren't you upset about the one this one thing that you said and and, and I, I think that's quite a difficult thing for our kind of our human brains to deal with
4: one of the other things that really stays me about the that comes out of the ronson book is as with so many other things in life it seems to be so much worse for women well, <laughs> I've
1: got one or two thoughts about I, I, this. I, you? I thought you might have. No, I, I do, and I've said this in my review this week that I think it's a prof- actually um, the big lie is that you know from from all that techno utopianism that happened when we had early social media networks, you know, in the kind of 2007 2008 era when uh, Twitter was very new and Facebook was still kind of expanding, is that there was this feeling that it was a hugely democratizing thing. That actually what was brilliant was happening is it used to be, like you were saying, it used to be that the columnists handed down a tablet of stone and we all the rest of us gratefully went kind of like. Like, ooh, yes, we te- we 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 appreciate your great wisdom, Simon Jenkins. Thank you for telling us about the Green Belt. And now, you know, the idea that people could kind of shout back that there was, if and if you were only one person with 100 followers, if there were 100,000 of you, you could hold people to account. But my problem, and I think it's very glancingly referred to in, in John Ronson's book, is that some of these shamings are profoundly misogynistic. So he talks about Max Mosley, who was caught kind of getting spanked in a in a dungeon somewhere and essentially doesn't see any real uh, downside to his life at all he gets some some press unwelcome press attention but he doesn't lose his job or lose his family or lose his friends doesn't lose his wife whereas you compare that with the kind of you know people who are getting text messages months afterwards from people who found their phone and people are getting rape and death threats um i do think there is a problem that it is that women as ever are are kind of turned into scapegoats and are socially policed much harder in terms of what is seen to be acceptable behaviour.
4: There's just a totally different register at work, I think. It's like when... It, it, it does sort of feel like there is there is sort of an undercurrent of misogyny that's always been there, but now we have anonymous social media accounts. A lot of people are kind of expressing this in a way they never would have before. So there's... there's uh, uh, Ronson actually speaks to... Uh, a woman who hangs out on on 4chan, which is a particularly misogynistic internet forum. And he asks her how she feels about the fact that so many of her peers have been making rape threats. And she basically says, well, that's because how societies value women is basically through their sort of sexuality. So if it's a guy, you try and get him sacked because, you know, men are seen as sort of, you know, their, their economic role is kind of core to their identity. Whereas women, if you want to attack the core of what it is to be a woman, you have to go after their sexual identity and that's an absolutely terrifying uh comment for anyone to make but the fact this is coming from a young american woman just i don't know it's just baffling that she should think that this excuses that kind of behavior
1: well it's that kind of status quoism that i think you see and not the band tragically that you see in a lot of um, internet discourse this idea that being objective actually means or neutral actually means upholding the, the status quo as it is which is the opposite of being progressive so you see with these things where You know, if you say to Google your search results that are autocorrect are returning kind of racist suggestions, they say, yeah, but that's just what people are putting in. But the problem is that if you see all that coming back to you every time you type "women are" or "Asians are," it kind of it feeds back into your idea that this is a thing that lots of people think. So what's happening there is that by refusing to kind of intervene, they are inevitably upholding the structures the oppressive structures of society now they say well obviously we can't we can't can't tamper with the holy grail of search results and and that is a, that is a credible position to take but the inevitable effect of it is that it perpetuates the status quo johnny you were slightly worried i'm putting you in, in the age bracket with me here that we're falling into this kind of fallacy of you know the douglas adams thing of any technology created by a certain age before you're 18 is totally natural use for swim in it you know, anything after between 18 and 35 is kind of really interesting you might get a job in it anything after the age of thir- anything that's invented after the age of 35 you, you know is, is, is going to end the world as we know it do you think that you and i are just probably going to this is it this is the start of us just thinking why can't everyone just write letters or send pigeons like they used to in our day
4: yeah it'll all end in tears probably already has Um, I, I don't know because I do actually, I spend a lot of time on Twitter. I probably spend too much time on Twitter. I'm very comfortable with it as, as an environment. Um, so no, I don't, I, I, I think that actually it's just that there is something about it that can bring out the worst in people. So you, you're just getting at the, the the, the ruptions you see in online feminism where you know different factions will be sort of taking each other to pieces for days on end while you know meanwhile you know the the men of the patriarchy are just getting on with like hoarding all the money and keeping women oppressed um and that does seem sort of a waste of everyone's time and energy and i think that is there is something specific to social media because it is possible to to kind of build an audience with you know flippant statements and you know the right level of sarcasm and going after popular targets is kind of that kind of group think is almost how sort of people build build a network around themselves And so sort of, you know you show that you're part of a movement by opposing everyone that that movement is opposed to and eventually will be sort of accepted within a particular group and i think that Probably has its roots in in sort of human psychology and how how groupthink has always worked, but I. You can kind of see it happening in real time on Twitter. That's
1: my problem, is that I try and guard against the idea that I worry that I might just be getting older and thinking that everything that is new is rubbish. But equally well, if you look at the work of someone like Cass Sunstein, who worked with Daniel Kahneman, he's a very respected theorist in kind of group theory. He talks about the conditions for group polarisation, and they are all so present in social media. So things like real-time feedback, you know, you know that you're much more likely to be radicalised, if essentially, by things that are giving you constant feedback, because you are getting affirmation. Um, I'm sure we could talk about this for ages, but I think we've probably um, <laughs> we've probably already got ourselves into enough trouble. Um, so for the moment, I'll say thank you very much to Stephanie and John.
0: I'm now joined by Ian Stedman, our science and tech writer, and Tosin Thompson, our welcome scholar, to discuss uh, the big science news this week, which is Apple's latest product launch, the Apple Watch. Um, so first of all, Ian, tell me, what is the
6: Apple Watch? It's a watch you wear on your wrist, but it's <laughs> more than that. It's a smartwatch, watch, which um, implies that it is basically a little iPhone for your wrist. Um, it has its own, it runs iOS, the same operating system as the iPhone, uh, but it has its own like different version of it. So it works on a smaller screen because you can't, you know, write and stuff on it as easily. Um, but the idea is that it's the next sort of step in smart stuff. So um, it's it will monitor your health. It will, uh, you know, at the moment it's such a faff to have to get your phone out of your pocket to see if someone's texted you. Instead, it will just pair with your phone and your app via Bluetooth so that if you get a text, you'll see it pop up on your wrist. Um, it'll do a bunch of other nifty stuff, probably. But a bit like the iPhone, this is. Kind of a new product class that we don't really know what it's going to be best at yet. Like when the iPhone first launched, it didn't even have an app store because it was just going to be like a, an iPod that played music and now it does all kinds of things. So there are some people who are excited about this and others who aren't actually as well. Other people who who worry that it's a bit of a gimmick. Okay.
0: Tosin, do you think people are only excited about this because it's an Apple product? Yeah, I do think it is.
7: I think... Um... The era in which we wear watches has sort of passed. You don't see many young kids, you know, rocking their watches these days. But because Apple's such a, you know, such a popular and very successful company, especially amongst young people, I think having this the iWatch might, you know, encourage young people to start wearing watches, smart watches. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think they're sort of taking advantage of that and sort of bringing back the watch. And it's also key to mention that smart watches do do currently exist. But because of the Apple brand, I think it's just going to really heighten the popularity of smartwatches.
6: Yeah, Androids, uh, Android Wear, which is like the version of Android for wearable technology, which is kind of the class this is, that's been out for a year, and it's pretty crappy, all told. I mean, it it's like, you know those Fitbit like wristbands mm-hmm. that people wear when they go jogging? They're just more complicated versions of that. And some people, like, they do find them really useful, and that's great. Um, but it, it's... It's weird. It's okay. This is the problem that I was one of those people who said that the iPad was stupid and I was so wrong. <laughs> so, um, I'm really wary about saying that this looks like, you know, I, uh, to me, it looks like uh, Apple's version of Google Glass. Like, I can see what it might be used for, but I can't see 99% of people wanting to go for it. But. The sheer weight of apple's brand and the i mean th- these are beautifully designed products as well um the, which and it's also reflecting the price which is um they've they've gone to fashion designers and watch designers they've gone to like the, the top Swiss watch brands and got uh advice and consultation on this and they've gone and you can customize them in lots of different ways uh so the cheapest most basic aluminium one is like three hundred and fifty bucks, but the most expensive is solid gold and it'll cost you ten grand. Um and that's uh it it like within the luxury watch world that's kind of like an entry entry level model apparently <laughs> so they they're they're really targeting this at people who a already wear wa- watches as a statement i guess um but but b not at people who don't wear well. They want to get people who don't wear watches at the moment to wear watches. But I also don't understand why someone who doesn't wear a watch every day and already spends a lot of money on a really expensive smartphone that does exactly the same stuff will want to spend all that extra money on duplicating it on their wrist
0: Mm, and yeah one of the big um sort of outrages about this watch is how expensive it is Mm. um but i'm sure that that happens every time apple do bring out a new product whereas we all have (laughs) macbooks and well i mean lots of journalists do i don't have a
6: macbook but i have a laptop which unashamedly rips off (laughs) Apple's design so yeah um yeah you can't you can't fault them for the quality of their design work but um the the interesting thing with apple in the tech industry is that Every, they do have, as I said, Android Wear has been out for a year, but people haven't really treated smartwatches as having truly launched or been a thing yet because Apple hasn't done it yet. And when Apple launches its product, that's treated as, that is the start of this product class. Um, so we'll start to see whether this thing actually becomes useful, I guess. Mm. I don't know. It's I
7: thought it was worth mentioning, Um there's this Chinese company, I think Alibad's, t- like, Halbo, something like that? Yeah. Um, they well, they have this sort of knockoff version of the Apple Watch, which is quite <laughs> funny. And it's been sold for about, well, in British pounds, about 20, 27 pounds. So a fraction <laughs> of what it would be. And it has similar features. It has digital crowns on the side of the watch. And it boasts long battery life. And I think they're encouraging third-party vendors like Amazon and e- eBay to, you know, to have this watch and some are you know making sure that you know it clearly states that it's not an apple watch it's a (laughs) knockoff cheaper version so yeah i think kids might if they can't afford the actual legit watch they might go for that but not you know not not show it to their friends
0: too closely in case they inspected it and realized that it's not the real one (laughs) okay And my last question to both of you is would you buy an apple watch if you had if you had the money if it was available
6: would you buy one no but then i held out on the iphone or at least a smartphone for about three years so i i i i I think i can think of myself as resistant but i give in eventually
7: (laughs) yeah i'm the same i think i've been i think we've all been sucked into this apple mania that i think i might just out of curiosity if i was given the chance to have one for free i would Oh yeah, Probably if someone gave it to me free, and if anyone wants <laughs> to give it that's it's all not it. what we're offering. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I would definitely, you know, put it on
0: my wrist and see what it's about. Great. Ian and Tosin, thank you. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast presented by me, Anoush Shekelian and produced by Anna Leskovich. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. Our theme music was Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons.